You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Haggai. Here's Nate. Today we turn to the Old Testament prophecy of Haggai. The book of Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament, just behind the one-chapter prophecy of Obadiah. Now, Haggai is a powerful book that packs a powerful punch. And really, the prophet Haggai, his prophecy and this portion of Scripture is such a perfect portion of Scripture in dealing with discouragement in the work of God and fear concerning the work of God. You see, years before Haggai had come onto the scene, in Ezra chapter 1, King Cyrus ushered a decree saying and allowing for a remnant of Israel to go back to Jerusalem for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. It was a very exciting time. Zerubbabel actually led the charge. They had Thousands of people that went with them. These were brave individuals willing to brave the elements and potential dangers. All for the glory of God to see the temple rebuilt. And perhaps you have experience in your life of with energy and passion stepping out to see something done for the glory of God. And that's exactly what was happening in the book of Ezra. But shortly after they got into the work the discouragements began. There were attacks from those that were within the land, and they began to be discouraged about their progress and fearful concerning their enemies. And so shortly after building and getting things moving, as far as the temple is concerned, the people then abandoned the work for a period of about 15 years. Now, during that period of stalled labor, there was a king named Artaxerxes who had actually also written a letter to decommission the work that Cyrus had decreed. And so there was a period of about 15 years where no building was taking place. Now, in that scene of discouragement, after about 15 years of nothing taking place, enter Haggai the prophet and also a couple of months after he began prophesying another prophet named Zechariah. These men entered in and they encouraged the people of Israel to do that which they knew was right and to rebuild the temple of God. So that's what we have before us in this prophecy from Haggai to the people is we have a prophet who is designed mainly to encourage the people of God to get busy about the ministry that God had called them to. Now, historically, what ended up taking place, and you can read all of this in the book of Ezra, but historically what ended up taking place is that they did end up getting back to the rebuilding program as a result of the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. But the people in the land wondered at the legality of what they were doing. This wondering would not stop the Israelites, however, and so the people of the land actually wrote a letter to the then king at the time, a man named Darius, and Darius actually in Ezra wrote back this hilarious letter where he basically tells them, yep, I looked it up to see if this is legal, and I found that King Cyrus 
actually said that it was legal and that we should pay for it. So he told the people in the land, you need to pay for it. And he actually told them, if you get in the way of this rebuilding project, then we will pull a beam out of your house and we will impale you on it. And sort of just, you know, like love Darius. And so, you know, the people had the favor of God in rebuilding, but they really didn't know it until Haggai and Zechariah came onto, onto the scene to challenge them concerning their priorities and this procrastination that they had gone through. Now, Haggai is basically a little two-chapter book with four prophecies that occur over a four-month window of time. We're going to see the first prophecy happen on the sixth month, day one, and the last prophecy will happen on the ninth month, day 24. And so a very short ministry that Haggai has but a powerful and forceful ministry. And Haggai was a prophet who did not water down the message. He spoke forcefully and truthfully. So let's read his prophecy, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And this is what he said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, first of all, you'll notice that the prophecy initially was driven towards the leadership in the nation, the leadership in Jerusalem. You had the governor, a man named Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and then you also had Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So the governor, the political leader, and the high priest, the religious leader, they are both spoken to immediately here and encouraged. And the first prophecy which comes from, as it says there in verse 2, the Lord of hosts. This little title for God is going to be used 14 times in the prophecies of Haggai. And I think that, that it's because God wants them to focus on the mighty power of God and not the threats of kings or the threats of foreigners. Now, this is what they needed to receive. They were afraid of the people around them and they needed to see that the Lord of hosts was with them and for them. And in this first prophecy, God gives a rebuke and says that these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. In other words, what they were saying was, first of all, they weren't saying that God never wants his house to be rebuilt. No, that's not what they were saying. They were saying the time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. In other words, these people were guilty of procrastination when it came to the work of God. They would never say, they would never admit that this was an unimportant work, but they decided that there were reasons that it indicated to them that the work was not yet now. And I found that discouragement or fear, when they enter into a human heart, it's so easy to reason out 
and decide that God is procrastinating his work, that there's something that God wants to do, but just not yet. It's something that is yet future. And these people needed to be filled with boldness. Now, it's important, I think, at this point for me to mention that these were not bad people. In fact, these were very brave people. Uh, you know, er, years earlier, when they had first arrived there in Jerusalem, they were a very zealous and committed group of about 50,000 people. And you have to remember that they weren't going to a tropical, beautiful, wonderful paradise there in Jerusalem. No, it would have been far easier for them to remain, you know, distant from Israel because the land had been uninhabited for a period of about 70 years. And so they had their work cut out for them. Money was tight. The work was hard. Enemies resisted the work. Babylon was a much easier place to live. And so what you see is that these were good people with a strong desire to serve the Lord and honor him. But even good people at times with the best of intentions can procrastinate in the work of God. And to that, these people were guilty. They said the time is not yet. And so often I find that people find great excuse in declaring that they will do the work of God, but later. And the time is now. Then the word of the Lord, verse 3, came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And here's what God said in this second prophecy. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And so if God had, in that initial prophecy, rebuked them for procrastinating in the work, here that he rebukes them about the priority of their lives. He's, he just looks at them and he says, listen, is this really a time for you to live in your paneled houses well, my house, the house of God, the temple, lies in ruins. And so basically what you have is a people who had placed themselves upon the throne and they had given God the leftovers of their lives. And it's very easy to imagine how this all unfolded in the lives of these people. You know, first they began to realize how difficult the work was. And so they began to confess, well, the work is too hard. Uh, they probably begin to justify and say things like, well, certainly God wants me to put my own home first. That is my first priority and ministry. And then they would say things like, yes, I'll, I'll remodel the house of God, but I want to remodel my house first. And then, you know, all of the other excuses that so easily come in in someone's life when it comes to doing the work of God. Yeah, I need to spend more time with my family. I think the single people should be doing it. The young people should be doing it. You know, God will save whoever he wants to save with us or without us. It will be better later. But the, the bottom line is that these people had placed themselves as the priority. And this is such a, you know, a discouraging trend, I think, in the lives of so many people. You know, what we're going to see in a moment is that these people were actually experiencing great pain in life. And they were experiencing great pain in life because of their backwards priorities. But it's just such a shame to me how so many people can have 
such a backward priority uh, in their Christian life and walk. I know as a church pastor that when the skies are gray, the rain is falling, there's a decent chance that church attendance is going to go down that day. You know, if you go over 10 minutes long in your sermon, people begin to squirm and glare and check their watches, but, you know, a three-hour movie is no big deal. And here you have people who are allowing the house of God to lie in ruins while their own homes were taken care of and paneled houses. And so obviously their priorities were off. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I found a great way to discover your priorities because, you know, we can say what our priorities are, but it's much better to try to discover what our priorities are and see if there's a gap between what they actually are and what we say we want them to be. And one way to do that is just to ask some questions. To ask, how do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? What are my goals? What do I think about the most? Who are my models and my heroes? Who are my friends? How do I spend my leisure time? When you begin to honestly answer these questions, I think you'll see where your priorities lie. And so these people, obviously, just by looking at their lives, their priorities were off and were self-focused. And so the Lord said in verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, four times in this book, God is going to advise the people to consider their ways. Haggai is going to prophesy and say, consider your ways. This is a wonderful thing to do, by the way. You know, just to pause, to reflect, to think to ask, to consider your ways. You know, we live in this shallow culture, thinking about a billion things, but it's good to pause. Just consider your ways. And what God says to them is, is he says, listen, you know, you've sown a lot, but you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so, to put them into a bag with holes. What God is trying to demonstrate for them is this problem that they were experiencing. They were working so hard, and yet there was no reward, and there was no fulfillment. And to me, I think this describes the modern age that I live in perfectly. An age with fervish activity with little to show for it. And this is what takes place when a person's priorities are off. When, when our priorities are off and Christ is not on the throne, nothing will satisfy us. And so the Lord said to them in response to all of this, verse 7, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and 
bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. Well, each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Now, this is fascinating because, uh, first of all, and the second thing God mentions here is that he takes credit for the drought and the lack of fruitfulness that they were experiencing. He says, look, I'm the one that called for a drought on the land, the hills, the grain, the wine, the oil, and what brings what the ground brings forth, and on man and beast and on all their labors. God says, I have been divinely interfering with you. I have not allowed you to experience the blessing that you could be experiencing if my house was thriving, if you were praying, if you were prioritizing my house and the way that you're called to prioritize my house. And so it's fascinating because God takes credit for instilling a dryness upon their lives. But he also gives them the prescription for the work. He tells them to begin to bring the wood and build the house. Now, I think there's a chance, actually, that when God is t tells them to bring the wood, I think there's actually a, a chance that in the past, after they ceased building, that many of them looked around and saw all of the, the lumber that was available for the temple, and now that they had stopped working on the temple, I imagine that some of them decided to borrow or commandeer some of that lumber and they used it in their own homes. And so I think when God is saying, bring the wood, I think he's talking about, you know, chopping down trees and acquiring lumber and bringing wood. But I think there's a chance that he might actually also be telling them to go and take the, the walls and the roofs off of their own homes because those things belong to God and were rightfully his, and they needed to bring them back into his house. And so he tells them to repent, to bring the wood, and to, verse 8, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You know, it would be one thing for them to say that they had feelings of repentance, but in God's book, repentance meant that they would begin to do the work. Just as Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 verse 5, he said, Remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so uh, the call of God upon our lives to get things right. And the truth of the matter is that we miss out on God's blessing when we ignore God and when we put ourselves as the priority. But the converse is true. That we are satisfied when we put God first. You know, I have for a lot of years now in my life and in my marriage with Christina, we have together just made a simple commitment to tithe unto the Lord. To give that tithe to God. And 
as the Lord leads us each year. We love the privilege of giving offerings or generosity to others, but we have a commitment at the very least to tithe unto the Lord, to give a tenth to him. And I know full well that everything I've ever received in this life, God has given to me. So there's absolutely no boasting in my heart to confess that uh, we've been able to give to the Lord. It's already his, and I know that without him, I wouldn't have even had anything to give in the first place. But I often wonder, you know, because here you have God taking credit for drying up their crops and saying, listen, when you put your wages in your pockets into a bag with holes, and when you never had enough and never had your fill and were never able to get warm and you sowed much but reaped little, as God took that credit, I often wonder in my life how many times the Lord has stretched a dollar in my family. How many times the Lord has provided for us? How many times have the tires lasted a little longer? How many times have I avoided that nail on the street? How many, how many times has God, you know, sovereignly provided for me without, without even my knowledge at all? You know, how many times has God taken care of me as I've sought at least to have that right priority within my life? And of course, this chapter is about much more than financial giving. How many times as your priorities are right and you're devoted to the body of Christ and you're serving the Lord and you're studying his word. You know, of course, it's all grace. But how many times as you've been in that place where God's grace is found, you're under the spout where the grace of God, the blessings come out, so to speak. How many times... As you've been in that place, has God just cared for you and done things in your lives that you wouldn't have had access to without the blessing of God upon your life? And so here God is basically describing what it's like to live without his blessing, which happens and comes when a person's priorities get backwards. And so, you know, when you give your life to Christ, it's important to have the priorities and the perspective that Christ himself has. Now, moving on in verse 12, it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Now, this is worth highlighting because this is one of the moments in the prophets that the people receive the prophecy. And this is rare. This is worth noting because of its rarity. You know, normally these prophets would be rejected, driven out of town, beaten, persecuted. But here the leaders and the people obey the voice of the Lord and fear the Lord. It's a beautiful response. Then Haggai, verse 13, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. There's nothing like the presence of God. 
You know, God going with us, God standing with us, God being with us. You know, I know for me, there are a lot of things that can be exciting in the body of Christ and in the work of the ministry, but there's absolutely nothing that can compete with the presence of God. You know, when God is with you, when God is shining upon you, when God is strengthening you and empowering you, when you're in awe of and in understanding of his presence with you and for you in the ministry, it's such a thrill and such a pleasure. You know, to the point that it it really doesn't matter how many seats are filled and and how big or influential the ministry might become. You're just satisfied because God is present, because God is there. And here the Lord confirms and affirms the people and says, listen, you've begun to get your priorities right. You've begun to see things the way I see things. And I want you to know that I am with you. In this rebuilding project, I am going to help you. I'm going to stand with you because you are getting your priorities right. And and I just think it's good for us to know and understand that when we obey the Lord and when we get to that place of being about his business, going into all the world and making disciples and living that missionary kind of life, when we have that willingness, the Lord is with us. Verse 14, it says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Everybody, the leadership, the governor, the high priest, the people, everyone is stirred up. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, on the second in the second year of Darius the king. So there was a twenty-three day delay between the first prophecy and the second prophecy, but these people just began to work. God stirred them up, their spirits were stirred, and they got to work. And it is work, by the way. You know, there is something semi-glamorous to the work of God when we watch it from afar. But the reality is that it is a work. And it would be hard work for these people to rebuild the temple, just as it is hard work to serve the Lord even today. And the lie is that someone else will do it. And so my closing encouragement to you today from Haggai chapter 1 is simply this. Get your priorities in line with the priorities of God. Don't say that the time has not yet come to serve the Lord. The time is now. And don't say that it's okay for God's kingdom to get the second best while your kingdom gets the best. No, lay down your life. Prioritize God's kingdom. Be busy about your father's business. And God will be with you in that endeavor. And it will be so richly rewarding as you serve the Lord. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.